Our culture is in crisis. Few people disagree about that. But what if the solution to the complicated problems we face was as simple as accepting the graces God offers us in the sacrament of holy matrimony? Today we'll discuss that question and more with Dr. Scott Hahn, who is a professor of theology here at Franciscan University and the author of The First Society, The Sacrament of Matrimony and the Restoration of the Social Order. I'm Michael Hernan, Vice President of Strategic Relations at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Welcome to Franciscan University Presents. I'll be your host, Michael Hernan, Vice President of Strategic Relations here at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. I'm joined in our studio here with uh, our regular panelist, Dr. Regis Martin, uh, Systematic uh, Theology Professor here at Franciscan, and Dr. William Newton, who is a theology professor as well here at Franciscan. And our guest today is, is no, uh, no stranger, Dr. Scott Hahn who uh, is both a normal panelist here on uh, Franciscan University Presents, but uh, you've got your, uh, your PhD from Marquette, your Master's in Divinity from uh, Gordon-Comwell Seminary, and uh, you, are, you hold here at Franciscan the Father Michael Scanlon Chair of Biblical Theology and the New Evangelization, but you also are the founder and president of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. You've written dozens of books. Uh, the book we're going to be talking about today is The First Society, uh, The Sacrament of Matrimony and the Restoration of the Social Order. Pretty lofty goal and an amazing vision that you have in this book, but welcome to the program. Great to be with you, man. And I didn't mention your family and your greatest successes as a grandfather now. Is it 15? 15, yes. Okay. So uh, we're talking about marriage. Um, so uh, lay the foundation. What is marriage? Well, at one level, everybody knows what marriage is, but in law, both civil and canon law, it is a contract, mm -hmm. but it's also a covenant. But Christ elevated it to a sacrament of the new covenant. Personally, it is a vocation, a calling from God to enter into a communion of persons, and that's what the covenant and the sacrament form. But ever since Obergefell, and really going back even further, marriage is really up for grabs these days. Yes. Because it just strikes me as being something that has been arbitrarily redefined. Right. You know, but it's like redefining gravity or repealing the law. It doesn't change anything, but it confuses everybody. Yeah. yeah. You, uh, you have that phrase, uh, I identify as. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. You don't originate it, thank God. But uh, <laughs> you do say that until quite recently, it would have been incomprehensible to most people. I identify as, I don't know, a piano or, or a pizza or a boy or a girl. Right. It, it's infinitely optional. I mean, that really does confuse uh, the issue of marriage. What the hell is it? It's whatever people say it is. Right. I mean, that's an invitation to anarchy. And our, our culture and our legal systems have muddied the waters, to oh, say they, at the least. That's right. <laughs> I mean, the legal system treats traditional morality as oppressive. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, I, I heard one person say that, you know, uh, traditional morality is weird, you yes. know, and, and we ought to be struck by how weird people think it is because that's what makes it so hard for us right now. Mm. Yeah. Mm. It, seems, it seems to me there's two elements that we have to always hold with marriage. One is that the, is ordered towards children, 
because that makes it very different from other possible liaisons. And the other is the indissolubility of it, the absolute permanency of it. And those two seem to be characteristics which, uh, if, if you knew how important they were to this arrangement, then other people wouldn't say, well, my arrangement's a marriage, because those arrangements aren't ordered towards children, they're not ordered towards permanency. Yeah. And what William is pointing out is not some kind of Christian imposition. I mean, this is the natural moral law, mm -hmm. that marriage is by definition something that is permanent, thus indissoluble, it's exclusive, thus monogamous, and open to life. Right. You know, the three goods of marriage weren't right. invented by Augustine, they were you know, created by God, that's <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, this is precisely where grace perfects nature. Yeah. You know, this is where there's a sort of marriage between the supernatural and the natural because, you know, the, the supernatural order of grace that Jesus establishes is not plan B. You know, it really is the fulfillment and consummation of that primordial marriage that is there at the very beginning. Yeah. So you, you, the title of your book, The First Society, you talk about marriage as the first society, both in order of importance as well as time. Right. What does that mean? Well, I mean, in terms of time, I think it's pretty obvious. You right. go back to Genesis 1 and 2, and you see how God created man in his own image and likeness. Yes. Male and female, he created them. Well, he created the horses and the cows, the dogs and the cats with gender you know, distinctions, but nothing is said about you know, male and female, because for them it's just biological, but only for us is there already a mystery implanted within our nature that is a theological imaging, a likeness. And so male and female, the two become one flesh in Genesis 2, and that one flesh they become is so real, I like to say that nine months later you better come up with a name because that newborn infant is the incarnation of the oneness the two have become. Right. And so there is already a kind of foreshadowing of the Trinity in the three who are one right. in the human family. Uh, it, it's not exactly the same. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a weak analogy, but it's also a profound one. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the society. That's the beginning of the first society, the first That's right. And first it's not just you know, first in terms of time. It's first in terms of rank as well yes. because every culture, and, and indeed historians will tell you, every civilization in so many ways can be understood in terms of marriage and how they viewed it. You know, uh, Professor Carl Zimmerman, who I quote in his great book, Family and Civilization, he was the founder at Harvard of this Department of Family Sociology, and he points out that long before Imperial Rome, you have marriage as a sacramentum. Right. You know, and this is something, again, apart from Christian revelation, apart from access to the Old Testament in Israel as well. And so I think it's just one of those things that causes us to want to take stock and, you know, just how creative we want to be in reinventing, redefining. You know, it, it suddenly uh, occurs to me that three of the most portentous words we find in Scripture are in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Because in the beginning, Genesis, beginnings, things start the dearest freshness, deep down things, as Hopkins puts it. And in the beginning, the issue of identity crystallizes round male and female. There's no third option. It's fixed. It's unalterable. And yet, implicit in uh, artificial contraception, you have this sundering of love from life, and then later, sex from life with genetic engineering. And so all of that is shattered. All of that has come to grief. We have overcome the beginning, and we're now setting sail, literally, in darkness. And who knows, you know, what strange port 
we're going to sail into. It's pretty scary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we, we have to see that, uh, as your book rightly shows, or nicely shows, that society is made up not of individuals, but of families. I, even I think Catholics can get confused about that. They see the society being a conglomeration of individuals, but what, what we understand is that it's not. It's, first of all, families who are grouped together. I mean, some, some cultures is easier to see that. I always think, for example, in Scotland, you think of Scotland is made up of the Mac this and the Mac that. I mean, there's yeah, the families, clan, yeah. yeah. And that's the, so those groups come together to create the society, but sometimes the cultures we come from, we think it's really just individuals. And this is very problematic right. for understanding of society. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it could be argued that the individual really doesn't exist as an atomized unit, because to be is always to be in relation. Mm-hmm. I mean, your last name uh, triggers that uh, connection. Uh, uh, father, mother, son, daughter, siblings, cousins. There's no end of the business. The kinship, I mean, it, that pattern is everywhere. The family is something you're born into. It's a condition you never really escape. You can't take flight from it. You're always a member of the family. Even if you despise it or denounce it, you can't take leave uh, mm-hmm. from it. And, and this is not a projection of our Christian faith or our Catholic personalism or whatever. I mean, it really is an empirical fact right. that we run from, that nobody is born an individual. The Enlightenment notwithstanding, we are born a son or a daughter. Yeah. It might be a happy marriage. It might be a broken marriage. It might be in the backseat of a car at a drive in theater, but I mean, there is a mother and a father that rec- you know that represent the instrument by which God forms persons who are in His image and likeness, precisely as not strictly male or female, but son and daughter, and then brother, sister, husband, wife, and all. It's it's the relational ontology, right. this family yeah. matrix. As I, I as I point out in the book, it's a universal hermeneutic. It's the way we come to know. Yes and be loved. It's also a universal metaphysic. It is an apt description of the whole fabric of reality. Yeah. You know, Robert, Robert Frost has a great line. He says, home is the place where when you get there, they have to take you in. Right. <laughs> they can't exclude you. Yeah, yeah. Even the black sheep belongs uh, in that flock. And yeah, when you look at the, the, even the analogies you use of like just even science, the atom, you know, as we talked about, you, you can't separate and know an atom into itself. It's always part of an element. It's always part yeah, of a larger group. Right. There's, I mean, everything in creation is pointing towards a larger community. And we are not only no different, we are actually the, 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 the pinnacle of what community is, what God designed. But he did that also, too, from the very beginning with himself, the Trinitarian understanding. What, what does that look like as you, as you kind of unpack how you've talked about the how the Trinity um, is seen in in marriage. Well, I mean, the Trinity is something unknown for ages until the fullness of time when God sends his son. We didn't even know that God had a son. And then we discover that God is an eternal father even more than he's a creator because however old creation is, it's not eternal, but God is. And so the the gift of the son reveals the mystery of the Trinity. And, And suddenly we realize this is more than a mathematical abstraction. Somehow God is one and three. How can you have one and many. Well, the, the pagan philosophers would always debate what is ultimate, the one or the many. Well, God would say C, both A and B. You know, <laughs> that unity is not diminished by three persons who love from all eternity. If anything, that unity is deepened, perfected, and then revealed to us mm. as not just something that we ought to contemplate, but as the only thing for which we were made. Yeah. You know, that's the only home. And the the, the human family, however sacred it is, is really a way station, a means to an end. Yeah. So the Trinity becomes the thing, 
the reality, yeah. the, the, the ultimate goal of human existence, as well as the ultimate template for human families. Yeah. Mm. So, so this, this shows why, I mean, that the family isn't just the kind of God's building block for society, it's also the way he's decided to reveal himself. Yes. So this is another element which makes marriage what it is, and mm. it, it stops us fiddling with it, because he has from eternity decided to use the sexual distinction between man and woman as the privileged way of revealing himself to us. And John Paul II, you know, picked this idea up, he ran with it somewhere like Mulieris Dignitatum, where he says, what we've got to reflect on is the decision, the divine decision to create humans always as male or female. Why did he do that? Right. And he answers it, he did it because they can form a communion of human persons which mirrors the community of divine persons, which is the right. Trinity. Yeah. It's, his, it's his portal into our world to reveal himself. Yeah, there really is something curious and profound because angels are persons, but not gendered. <laughs> They're not capable of generating. Animals aren't persons, but they can generate offspring. Yeah. And so here we are betwixt and between, right. you know, the, the material and the spiritual converge, yeah. and this is how God has chosen to, yeah. to reveal himself. Yeah, a psychosomatic unity. Yeah. And that integrity is, I think, only upheld by the teaching of the church. These, these trinity uh, images are everywhere uh, yeah. in creation. Uh, there's the lover, there's the beloved, and there's this mysterious current of love that springs forth from that exchange. It's not exhausted by the exchange of pleasure. Something survives, this openness to life. And then the three ends of marriage, it, it's faith, uh, it, it's uh, it's uh, fruitful. It's forever. Right. Yeah. It's also, I suppose, free. You can't coerce people into this. But it's not surprising that if we're made in God's image and He is triune, then why shouldn't we be triune? Mm. We might have to wait till eternity, but eventually we're going to realize this isn't just a universe. It's a tri-universe <laughs> that reflects the Trinity at every level. You know, like the crystalline structure of quartz, no matter how low, you know, you shatter it and all of the fragments still retain that structure. You know, but I think at the same time, we don't want to just kind of, you know, project this from on high. We want to also draw it from below and recognize the practicality, the difficulty, you know, why was it the case that God in the Old Testament accommodated himself to the weakness of the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve by allowing polygamy and eventually divorce and remarriage. And even with the patriarchs who are the paragons of faith like Abraham, a concubine, Jacob, two concubines and two wives, you know. And so what we recognize is that Jesus launched a revolution in the history of world religion, in human history, by returning to the beginning, by making monogamy more than an ideal, yeah but making it possible by making it a sacrament. Mm -hmm. that, that, and that's chained everything. You know, yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's the profound... More than we realize. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, Scott, that's a, a fascinating distinction, that it's not just an ideal towards which we try to move. We aspire after this ideal, this uh, distant paradigm in the sky. No, it's written in to the very structure of our being. Uh, so it's there already. It's part of the identity, the DNA. It defines us. I mean, that's more comforting, I think, than saying, oh, here's this ideal that you're never going to reach, right. but try your best uh, to close the gap. Yeah. I mean, that's frustrating. But if the ideal is inscribed in, in the exchange of vows between a man and a woman, that's, that's liberating. Yeah. So then it seems that we have to hold maybe three truths to actually understand marriage, that it's created in the beginning, there's a marriage, and that mirrors somehow the Trinity. Then sin comes in and causes a fracture, but not yeah. a destruction. 
And then Christ comes and through the sacraments brings about the healing That's of that great. fracture. And if we don't have either, if we miss out one of those three elements, we somehow are going to misunderstand what marriage is. That's we right. either idolize it or we just think it's some kind of uh, forever broken reality that we just sort of hobble along in. Stay with us for the next segment of Franciscan University Presents. At Franciscan University of Steubenville, you'll find faith and reason, wisdom and grace, mercy and truth. You'll study under world-class scholars and seasoned practitioners who are committed to Christ and His Church. With over 40 majors and pre-professional programs, you'll find the formation you need to succeed. At Franciscan University, you'll find more than just a college. You'll find yourself and an educational experience as singular as you are. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We've been talking to Dr. Scott Hahn about his latest new book, The, uh, the First Society, um, how the sacrament of matrimony and the, uh, about the sacrament of matrimony and the restoration of the social order. Um, so we kind of painted a beautiful picture, uh, a beautiful vision of how God created and first intended marriage to be, and um, the ideal that is also imbued in our hearts, and it's imbued in, in uh, the very communal nature that we are as human beings. But we look around today, and that isn't the case insofar as our practical experience. Uh, as married men here, we know we have our own personal crisis uh, or challenges in, in marriage. But when you look at the society as a whole, it's, it's broken. And um, you know, there, there are secular forces, there's legal forces that we talk, cultural. As we look, look at marriage, why is it all confused? Why, what is to blame, I guess? And, and, and where, where do we stand on this current crisis in marriage? I mean, it's a big question. Right. You know. I mean, to, to spin the yarn here, I mean, you could create so many meta-narratives to explain the crisis in marriage. I mean, you could go back to the 60s, the sexual revolution. You know, you could go back five centuries and look at, you know, enlightenment and post-enlightenment right. thought. You could go back to the beginning and recognize that Satan's stratagem was not to target Adam or Eve, and not just them together, but their marriage. Yeah. And then in Genesis, what is it, 4, Lamech, you know, succumbs to the temptation to polygamy, and we're off and falling. You know, it's, yeah. and so... It's so very early in our history. That's totally right. Different. But I, one thing I try to, try to resist in the book is this idea that if we could just kind of rewind the tape, yeah. turn back the clock, and a kind of sacred nostalgia, go back to the 50s, yes. when Fulton Sheen was winning Emmys on Prime. Like, you know, <laughs> Ozzie and Harriet. That's, that's right, right. Father Knows Best, and, and I prefer to, to Leave it to Beaver, you know. <laughs> right. uh, starting from when I, was, when I was born, you know, and they're now rerunning these shows all the time on various networks. You know, I think the, temp the temptation is to just, say, to, just to say, if we could go back before the Supreme Court yes. started monkeying around with all of these things, and, you know, it, you know, as I point out in the book, it didn't start with Obergefell. You know, it didn't start with Griswold versus Connecticut or Roe v. Wade. You know, these things go back not only in American history and Western civilization, but I mean, they really point like signs to something that is, you know, like Chesterton's line: "What's wrong with the world? I am." Yeah. You know, um, and so I, I think we have to be honest with ourselves and recognize that, you know, on the one hand. Marriage is, for me, the most fulfilling relationship I've ever known. Almost 40 years with Kimberly, more happiness, deeper friendship than I could have imagined. On the other hand, you know, yeah. greater frustration. I have hurt her more than anybody else has in things that I said in my insensitive re responses and all that kind of thing. 
and she has hurt me. And so you never experience more happiness and also more struggle. Mm-hmm. And so you can, you can understand why people give up. Yes. You know, why Jesus made it a sacrament, because a sacrament doesn't make it easy. It makes it possible, as I try to show yeah. in the book. Yeah. You know? uh, it, somebody once said, I think anonymously, that if it weren't for marriage, men would go through life thinking, everything is just fine. <laughs> I'm all right, Jack. I, I did think I was a good, <laughs> holy person prior to having children. <laughs> <laughs> and unfortunately, many men go through marriage saying that. <laughs> right. Short-term marriage, right. I'm afraid. But, but it is the element of sin that uh, William uh, mentioned in the last That's segment, right. what Belloc calls the worm in the apple, in yeah. the fruit, mm-hmm. that insinuates that poison deep down. And, and you have a great reminder uh, in your book that when you struggle with lust, for example, you, you shouldn't blame it on the culture. Blame it on the heart, your own heart. Yes. Uh, get busy and try and purify the source. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So while there's, it's clear, I mean, you, you rightly say we shouldn't be nostalgic for another era, certainly not the 1950s, but I guess we can sort of recognize certain kind of event horizons. I mean, the first one happened in That's the right. garden. That's the ultimate event right. horizon. But also perhaps, you know, around the Reformation, a loss of sense of the sacramentality of marriage Huge. guts it That's right. of the inner power that's right. needed to live well. And then um, I always think it's also particularly important to think of something like Leo XIII's Acarnum. So this is the end of the 19th century where he's speaking against divorce. And he's pointing out, look, if you allow divorce, you really strike at one of those principal elements of marriage, the indissolubility, you gut it of any meaning. Yes. If you gut it of any meaning, then all other pretenders can come in and say, well, I'm a marriage, I'm a marriage. Right. So same-sex marriages kind of make sense in that logic. We've already by divorce, denied the very essence of marriage, made it into more or less an arrangement of a friendship that's breakable. Right. Well, I mean, this is the end game. Right. 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 Yeah, I I, I think of Immanuel Kant's uh, description of marriage. It's simply a contract that allows for the mutual use Mm -hmm. of the sexual organs. I mean, that's reductionism. But that's exactly accurate for where he was living in Germany at the time because as you point out once you deny the sacramentality of it you reduce it to a covenant as Protestant but then in the Enlightenment you reduce it to contract it really is an exchange of goods and services pleasures and so on you know but once it's a contract you know Leo the 13th points this out too how the inner logic leads us downward because once it's dissoluble you know you deny the sacramentality, you deny the covenantality, then you're going to not see the indissolubility. You know, and by 1930, Lambeth leads the Anglicans to say, you know, under certain circumstances, contraception is fine. So the fertility, the fruitfulness of marriage is also undermined. You know, this is why when people point to the Supreme Court allowing gay marriage, you know, it, it seems to me that we can discuss same-sex attraction, homosexuality, you know, gay, marriage, sodomy, whatever you want to call it, but the solution is not heterosexuality. Right. You know, it is, I mean, th- there is a sense in which we can use that category, but there's also a deeper need to recognize that being a heterosexual, you know, we still have to fight lust, as you were pointing out, right. and I, as I try to explain in the book, too. 
we're called to fidelity. Yeah. You know, we're called to intimacy, but we're also called to self-denial right. in the process. And and learning how to apologize promptly and sincerely has always been hard for me. I I always tended to weaponize my apologies. You know, like, <laughs> I'm sorry you didn't understand what I was saying again. You know? <laughs> so, so you do that too. <laughs> yeah, your point about gay marriage, I think, is well taken. It it applies a logic that has already been in place That's right. for a That's long right. time. It's, the, it's almost a natural fruition, I mean, illogical. You could, you could go back to 1968 with Humanae Vitae. Mm-hmm. If, if you break the connection between love and, and life, if sex doesn't really have to be about babies, then why does it have to be about women? Mm-hmm. Why can't it just be two guys right. doing it? Right. It's, right. Like, it's like having a house in which you sort of slowly suck out all the air and cause a vacuum. Then you'd only probably have to flick the wall and the whole thing would go, oh, yeah. Right. yeah. And this is the experience we've had with the redefinition of marriage uh, to allow gay marriage. It's, there's, there's nothing in it holding marriage, the wall stable. That's right. Just flick it. And, and, and so with all of this that's going on both today and throughout history, ha- has there ever been a time? Has there ever been a cultural understanding of what marriage really was? Is this, is this a golden era that never existed? You know, on the one hand, you can't identify any historical period as idyllic, paradisical. On the other hand, you can see you know, Christendom as a civilization uh, was a kind of civilization of love, fundamentally flawed in countless ways. You know, but I'm fond of a, a work by a dear friend and colleague, you know, Andrew Jones, Before Church and State. He's looking at 12th and 13th century France, but he could have looked at almost any part of Christendom at the time. And again, it was flawed, there were failings, but at the same time, there was this sacramental foundation. Mm. You know, baptism wasn't just a kind of childhood event, it was citizenship. It was to be naturalized, only supernaturalized, into something so much more than one nation. Mm. It was this international family that you know, extended from heaven to earth and defined who we are, not only as saints, but as citizens and sinners. Right. And when you take those sacraments as building blocks, you begin to recognize that only in the Catholic Church, only with all seven sacraments, do you have the civilization forming power and potential of the Christian faith unveiled, not just in theory, but in practice. And again, I don't want to point to it and pretend as though this was perfect, but it shows us that if we look at the inner logic of the sacraments and realize this is powerful love at work, we alone have the, the means by which to restore the social order, yeah. and then some. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I'm thinking about my old friend Brent Bozell, mm-hmm. uh, who wrote extensively uh, about this, and, and he had a great line. He said, a confessional state, Christendom, a Christian culture, is not a judicial theory. It's an act of love. It's a gesture of love, whereby the state tries to make it easier for men and women to be good to practice virtue. So you outlaw things like pornography, abortion, divorce. It makes it easier for people. If, if divorce doesn't exist as an option, then couples, it seems to me, really have to work hard to make their marriage uh, survive. Yes. Let me yes. digress for a minute, I hope no more, because a confessional state is not a bad thing, but a good thing, especially compared to a secularized state. Yeah. On the other hand, what Dr. Andrew Jones points out in Before Church and State, was that long before you had confessional states, you had societies like the one under King Louis, the only French monarch to be canonized. And under St. Louis, you, you have historians today saying, oh, that's church and state. 
But when Andrew went back and looked at the primary sources, you never have that language of church and state. You have clergy and laity, yeah. but they're all baptized. Right. And, and so St. Louis did not think of himself as representing the state as king versus the church. He was a layman who was baptized, confirmed, and married. And as such, his monarchical rule was under the clergy, but it wasn't other than the church. As a layman, he was called to sanctify the temporal order, and as the king, that's what he was doing. It was a sacramental organism. Yeah. And to me, that's where the civilization-forming potential of the of the, of the Catholic faith in general, right, and the sacraments right, yeah. in particular, have got to be rediscovered. Because yeah, their yes. membership in the body of Christ is what defines citizenship. Exactly. I belong yeah. to yes. the church, I belong to Christ. It's yes. It doesn't matter that I'm French uh, or German or English. It doesn't matter. What finally matters is I am a citizen of eternity. Right. I belong yeah. to and God. And the best thing I can give to France or America is my Catholic faith lived right. out as well as I can. But this, this is just like such a revolution of thinking for us as Catholics, yeah? So in Libitas, uh, Leo makes the analogy that the church and the society is like the soul and the body. Right. And they come together to benefit each other. So only the church has the power, as you say in your book, to get to the heart of the problem in society, which is sin. It's got the tools to heal society. And as you were pointing out, Regis, society therefore should do certain things to make that easier. Right. Laws should That's be right. there to respect the position that the church has in God's plan as the particular vehicle for bringing salvation to mankind. Yeah. So, and he says, you know, soul and body, and if you separate soul and body, what do you get? Yeah. You get something which is dead. It's yeah. really and radical. I, and I think that's at the, at the, when I love this, seeing that, that we so often fixate on the society, on the, the big macro issues. And I spent a number of years in politics, so I, I, I get that, I understand that. But breaking it down, going from society is, uh, you, you talk about marriage, church, and society. And that, that, that the marriage perfected is perfecting the church. The church perfected is perfecting society. But we so quickly jump to, how do we fix right, society? Right. Uh, I just turned 60, and so this is the book that represents the next stage of my life where I want to kind of come out, yeah. take off the gloves. Yes. You know? yes. And uh, this is more subversive, but it's more constructive because, you know, what Leo is doing in Libertas with soul and body, you know, the church is the soul, the society is the body, animates it, drawn from the epistle to Diognetus, as you know. I think it's a beautiful vision, but it's an analogy because the church is not a soul, it's a body itself. And as a visible body reaching from heaven to earth, it is, in a certain sense, again, what we could see at Christendom, uh, a civilization of love. And what we also are enabled to recognize is that the secular society that has grown up alongside of the church in so many ways has presented us with a disguised form of a counter-religion and a kind of set of pseudo-sacraments and a sort of public liturgy that you best come to comprehend when you realize that for the last several centuries, it isn't accidentally contrary to the Catholic faith or Christianity, it's deliberate. I don't want to become a conspiratorialist, but I also want to, I don't want to be naive, you know. And so uh, we want to sanctify the temporal order, but we also want to recognize that we are a society. That's right. And we have this capacity to form civilizations if we just live it out. Stay with us for the next segment of Franciscan University Presents. What it means that we have a sacramental grace of marriage is that through the power of Christ, we really are empowered by Christ to be good spouses. 
and to really live up to and live out fully God's plan for sex, love, and marriage. Specifically, that means we're going to be able to love each other with a love that we may not have on our own, but really the love of Christ. We're going to be able to forgive each other. We're going to be able to sacrifice when needed. We really are going to take on the power of Christ and take on a Christ-like character in marriage. It's going to lead not only to being a good spouse, of course, but also to being a good person. And then we get a kind of twofold relationship there. As we're a better person in the life of the other person, we make them a better person and they're a better spouse to us in return. And this is ultimately what leads to the image as well that we have in the sacrament of marriage. We are able to live up to the love of Christ, not only towards the other, but receive that love back and get a kind of model of the love of Christ for the church. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. This entire program springs forth from the very heart of Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. Uh, right now we're taping this uh, show in the studios at the Communication Arts Department here in uh, Steubenville, Ohio. The camera and equipment is being operated by our, our students here, and uh, our panelists are theology professors here at the university. So Scott, this is an excellent book, The First Society, The Sacrament of Matrimony and the Restoration of the Social Order. What, what really was the driving force, or what, what really motivated you as you looked at this book? Because this is, this is a seminal work in some ways. For yeah, I mean, nearly 40 years of marriage, six kids, 15 yeah. grandkids, yeah. all of the above. But I think it goes back to the event, the, the story that I described in the beginning of the book. I was a doctoral student first semester uh, at Marquette, studying under a Jesuit theologian who was also a professor at the law school at Marquette, and a brilliant lawyer, legal mind, but also a theologian. Father Keefe was lecturing in this seminar on religion and society, and this was the mid-80s. So it was John Paul, it was Reagan, it was Jerry Falwell, the moral majority, Catholics and Protestants were sort of joining for the first time in a pro-life alliance. So this was the topic of conversation. And we were reading not only Fustel de Coulange, the ancient city, to see how religion historically always had a, a public face, you know, always was uh, forming a social order. We were reading Richard John Newhouse's Naked Public Square, and he was still a Lutheran. He hadn't become a, a Catholic or a priest at that point. But uh, he was lecturing through all of these big ideas about how we can and how we shouldn't. And then he just interrupted himself. He looked out the window for a couple of seconds, and we were all like, What's he seeing? And he wasn't seeing anything. He was thinking. And he just kind of blurted out this sort of, un you can tell it was unscripted. He's like, you know, if Catholics simply lived out the sacrament of matrimony for one generation, the result would be a Christian society. Oh, but I digress. And so he went back to the lecture notes. And I'm like, I never heard another word of that lecture. I was like, what did he just say? He, he didn't mean that. That's hyperbole. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized he's exactly right. Yeah. It's not just that this one sacrament can save the world, but the one sacrament is tied to the other sacraments. Because right. you can't administer marriage to your spouse unless you're both baptized. Right. But then baptism plus confirmation and to receive the body of Christ, those sacraments of initiation don't just initiate church membership. They unite you to this corpus Christi, a corporation like no other business <laughs> right. in the yeah. world, you know. Yeah. And as a result, you have these sacraments of service and calling, holy orders, as well as holy matrimony. Yeah. And, you know, it's like one hand washing the other. It is such a combination, a coordination of that. 
if we just thought through the inner logic of divine love and power that is already there, yeah. as well as in the sacraments of healing, penance, the anointing of the yeah. sick, I really would, I, I really believe that we don't have to give in to anxiety about which politicians get elected so much as what we have to do is to live out the grace of the sacraments more fully, more publicly, more boldly, especially confession, yes, yes, but yes. to all of them as well. And I, I really do believe that Keefe was not exaggerating, right. that yeah. this is how it happened in the right. first few centuries. I mean, th this can be almost reduced to a sort of cliche, bloom where you are planted, yes. become what you are. Or as Catherine of Siena uh, memorably puts it, if you do what you're supposed to do, you're going to set the world on fire. Right. I mean, the transformative impact of that, it's a chain reaction, mm -hmm. a catalyzing uh, uh, event. Um, the, the thing that I wanted to, uh, to, to talk about, uh, and your phrase, the public face mm -hmm. of faith, uh, 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 sort of uh, uh, evoked this, uh, this, this image. Uh, Daniel Liu, Jean Cardinal Daniel Liu, in that little book of his, which is a gem, a masterpiece, prayer as a political problem, he makes the argument that it is unreal and dangerous for the civil and the religious uh, orders to move in separate uh, orbits. They belong together. They're not the same. It's not univocal, but there is an analogical relation. If you leave the civil order to develop itself without reference to God, mm -hmm. then you leave man incomplete, tragically, uh, 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 without those skills, those resources, that therapy of grace on which he absolutely depends. Prayer becomes a political problem. Right. And then the state really has an obligation to help ensure access to God. Because left to our own devices, most of us will not find God. Mm -hmm. He's invisible. He doesn't appear in the space-time continuum where we locate our material being. So society has a role to play, a kind of conspiracy to make it possible, to make it attractive for men and women to practice virtue. There are all kinds of things society could do, like shore up uh, the status of marriage. Yeah. And, right. and we have to understand here that we're saying something more than just religious liberty. We're saying somehow a positive attitude from the side of the state towards religion and particularly towards the Catholic Church, yeah. which again, Leo says, right. if we're not prejudiced, if the state is not prejudiced, it will see some divine marks upon that particular religion no. that will allow it to give it a certain favor. Not a favor which forces others to convert to it, so a gentleness there, but really to favor it. Why? Because the citizens that the political community is looking after are people destined for eternal life. Yeah. They cannot be properly looking after them if they don't have that as the horizon. Uh, Pius XII says the same thing about Christian education. He says, look, only Christian education is perfect education because only that sort of takes the holistic view of the human being. Yes, all the human formation, yeah. but those children have eternal life as their destiny. Right. Christian, if, if you have a non-Christian education, it, it does something good, but it's not perfect. If you have a non-Christian or non-Catholic state, it does something good, but it falls short from really helping the citizens to reach their final goal. Because right. yeah. when, when you think about what you said, it is, it is this subversive, revolutionary, um, it's an affront to, and has been an affront to uh, the political state as, as the culture would have it in often days, but it really is actually aimed at the renewal uh, and the perfection uh, of our, our political order. 
but as we as we look around, I mean, we do see something very different than this view uh, that 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 uh, that Keith proposed, and that there would be this transformation. What are the necessary steps? How do we how do we start living this out? What is what what can we do in order to make this sacramental worldview, this sacramental society, yeah. um, a reality? I went to Marquette to study under Father Keith because he was working on his magnum opus, Covenantal Theology, in two volumes. And, and he saw covenant as marriage. I focused on covenant as family. But I, I, I was fixated on this because it's not only a theology that makes sense of the scriptures, but it's, you know, it's something you can take home with you. Yes. And it's what you encounter when you get home. Yeah. You know, it's family. And so you know, after all these years of marriage, I think practically speaking, um, you know, I would say what Kimberly has found 101 ways to say gently is stop complaining, Scott. <laughs> you know, I, I really have a tendency to complain. She is always positive. You know, stop complaining doesn't mean start, you know, stop diagnosing. I, I think we can stop complaining about the circumstances, but start diagnosing the illness of the social body in which we live. If we do that, again, we could easily fall, or fall into complaint. But I think we can recognize then, you know, that uh, marriage is so much more than what it ought to than what people think it is. And we ought to live it out in a way that is joyful and humble and, and honest, you know, that it's not easy. I, I also think that if we live out marriage in this way, our children pick up on it, and the neighbors do too. Uh, you know, Rodney Stark's classic work, The Rise of Christianity, points out that martyrs were not simply the cause of the expansion of Christianity families were, right. the way women were treated, especially in marriage as a sacrament. And he was writing it as an agnostic sociologist of religion and history. And he's eventually come around to the faith. But the fact is, the facts are there. And yes. they, they point to how it is that we can live in a culture of death like the Roman Empire and live out the sacrament of matrimony and extend that grace. You know, on the one hand, we don't want to fall into Shinto Catholicism, as Virgil, Father Bloom used to call it. You know, I'm Catholic because I was Irish or Italian or yeah. whatever. We also don't want to fall into an Amish Catholicism mm -hmm. where we just end up forming these closed communities. Yes. You know, uh, I think we have to really have a public, uh, oh, what's the word, you know, an outreach, yeah, a mission. Engagement. Mind, yeah. yeah, right. And we're, we're missionary apostles. That's right. But at the same time, we go back home we have to live it out, and that's what matters so much more mm. than talking it up out right. there. Mm. You, you know, uh, at the heart of uh, Daniel Liu's analysis is the outrageous, by our lights, uh, statement that Constantine really did us a favor. Yeah. Uh, when he was baptized, when he converted, everything changed because he took account of the event of the incarnation. Nothing could remain the same after God became man. And so it really does become a sacred conspiracy to baptize everything in the blood of the Lamb. I mean, that's a tall order to convert Caesar and then get Caesar to somehow uh, pronounce the church, give her the primacy of place that she deserves in the order of not just redemption, but in the order of time and space, mm -hmm. and let her do her work. She ought to be the first citizen of the commonwealth. The family is the second citizen, and the individual doesn't really exist in his atomized uh, uh, state. He only exists as a member of a family. Yeah, yeah. I think one thing that's uh, so great about this book is that I think so you bring out something which is perennial in the Catholic social teaching, which uh, sometimes gets missed because uh, it comes at the end of the encyclicals and they're long and maybe you don't read all the way through. <laughs> but almost all of them end up by saying, look, the only solution to the problem is a return to Christian virtue. 
So rerum navarum, yeah? yeah? There's a conflict between the capitalist and the laborer. There may be practical things that can be done. But he says, but at the end of the day, there's got to be a change in the hearts right, of right. both parties. And lo and behold, we have the power in the church to change the heart. Namely, we have the sacraments. We have the divine power. Mm. And that seems to be what you're saying. Release no, that's exactly. It. Release I mean, that power. You know, I, I heard a professor explain to me when I was becoming Catholic that in our tradition, virtues are to the soul what muscles are to the body. They make you strong and and strong to love. And it's not just true for individual souls and bodies, it's true for the social body, which is soul and body, you know? And I think if we recognize the need to grow in virtue uh, through the grace of the sacrament, we will recognize that the diagnosis of our social, social ills is not, again, traceable back to Obergefell or gay marriage, that sort of thing, but it's really traceable back to our hearts, which need to be healed, but it's always going to be gradual. So this is, personal. This is practical. This is concrete. This is what I'm going to be dealing with tonight at dinner with Kimberly. Right. And at the same time, it's radical. It's counter-revolutionary. It's beyond ambitious. And yet I have to believe God wants to do this more than we want him to. Right. And it really is what you're proposing and you said in the book is really impossible. That's right. Uh, for us, humanly right? speaking, that's humanly speaking. Naturally, right. yeah. But, but it, is, it is natural and it's inborn in us, so it's inborn that we have to be dependent on that sacramental grace in order to fulfill this. Point. That's right. And, and so often in the, in, in the past, you, you see salvation history revealing this providential pattern that, that God allows the deepest darkness before the light dawns. You know, right. exile, where Israel is enslaved before the Messiah comes. He doesn't just bring them out of political captivity, but spiritual. I mean, every level of captivity is what Christ delivers us from. But it's not just from captivity, it is for family. And not just human sociological, but divine family, the church. You know, in the Old Testament, you might say that the family was a reflection of the Trinity that wasn't even known yet. But the church of the new covenant is nothing less than the extension of the Trinity. Hmm. We really are the extended family of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And nothing less than that will really capture it. I mean, if you have a a poor family living on top of Fort Knox and they complain about these shiny bricks, tell them that's gold bullion. You know, (laughs) there is wealth and power you're you're not tapping yet. (laughs) I I suppose if if you wanted to put your book in a programmatic uh, context, what is it really about? What is it exhorting everyone to do? Uh, The answer is quite simple, become a saint, the witness of sanctity. Uh, there's a great line in Balthazar's book, Raising the Bastions. He says, look, you can, you can shoot the saint. Uh, you can maybe suppress uh, the practice of, of holy religion. But what you can't do is refute sanctity. It's irrepressible. It's there because it comes from God. And, and to become a saint, not by your own power, but by the fact that God has decided within the marriage itself to put a spring of divine life. And we have to tap into that. Yes. Right. So we got the power. We just have to yield to it. Yeah, and the chisel in the hand of the divine sculptor has a name, in my case, Kimberly. (laughs) That's how I'll be made a saint. (laughs) Isn't that great? Uh, Stay with us for the final segment of Franciscan University Presents. One of the biggest reasons we have for being faithful to our marriages and fully living out the sacramentality of marriage is the way we see that it benefits those around us, even uh, as it's benefiting ourselves in marriage. And what we mean by that is that when we live out the kind of love that God calls us to in marriage, and when we're empowered by the grace that God gives us in marriage, this is a great lesson across the board for the society around us, that the greatest things in life 
The greatest challenges in life must be met not only by commitment, but by availing ourselves of the grace that God gives us. And it's going to show a kind of possibility that isn't there without factoring that grace in. We're going to be able to strike people, interest people, and hopefully ultimately encourage people to think that they're capable of more than they realize, that even the loftiest goals and the greatest challenges can be met and can be realized and overcome through the grace of God. This is what we do in our sacrament. This is what we do in marriage. And when we do that on a small scale, we're opening people's hearts to doing that across the board in all spheres of life. Explore the treasures of your Catholic heritage on a Franciscan University pilgrimage. Led by inspiring spiritual directors, you'll walk in the footsteps of saints and martyrs in the Holy Land, Poland, France, and Italy. And you'll deepen your love for Jesus Christ through daily mass, confession, prayer, and the joy of Christian fellowship. Let Franciscan University lead you on a pilgrimage of faith. Find out more at franciscan.edu slash pilgrimages. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We've been talking about marriage today, and this is our final segment, so Regis, could you lead us off? Yeah, one thing, uh, uh, it's sort of a commonplace, but it, it does occur to me that people and societies, they sort of get the problems they deserve. Yeah. Uh, but solving some problems uh, can be more satisfying than others. So when I muse about what age I would wish most to have been born in, lived in and thrived in. Uh, I think of the fourth century. I'd love mm. to have been at the Council of Nicaea and I would pop Arius uh, uh, in the nose. Athanasius and I would have stood together <laughs> tall in the saddle because the issues were really exciting. God, Christ, I mean, that's exhilarating stuff. Uh, Father Murray says that was the last great religious argument mm. uh, in, in the West. Or the 16th century, I mean, I'd love to have been at Trent, you know, talk about faith, justification, uh, freedom, grace, the real presence. But here we are in the 21st century, and what are we talking about? Well, in this degraded, uh, distracted age, we're talking about life. Uh, when does it begin, and is the family the best place to welcome uh, new life? And what exactly is a family? And then we come back to that shibboleth, those three words, uh, my identity, I identify as. I mean, what complete rubbish. People should know who they are. Certainly our ancestors knew where they began, where they left off. Thomas More knew that. He didn't have to worry about, well, am I a man today? Or maybe I'm just a monkey. I, I think that this age is really a mess. Uh, and that's why a book like yours is so wonderfully clarifying. It clears the air. The only question that remains is, how do you get people to read it? <laughs> so that's what you have to do. You've got to promote this book because it's wonderful stuff. Yeah, thank yeah. You. Thanks, Regis. Yeah, I totally concur. It's, it's really a, an important book. I think it's getting us back to this program which Leo XIII sort of so uh, clearly laid out for us that the separation, radical separation of church and state, which somehow we think is the norm, is just not good for either party. And this analogy of soul and body, I think, is, is important. 
And what you, I think, show wonderfully is, okay, well, what do we do about that individually? How do we start to bring about that interface? And what we can do, so if we're married at least, is to bring it about again in, through the marriages. Right. And uh, it reminded me reading actually of, a, of the film um, Jean de Florette, I don't know if you know, oh. or Berry film. And in the film, he inherits a piece of land. Um, he's never lived in the village, he inherits it. And his neighbors want to get hold of the land and there's a spring on the land. And so the neighbors cover it up before he arrives to take possession of it. And all his agricultural projects fail because when the sun comes up, it's Provence in the summer, everything dies. And it's just so tragic because he doesn't know that right on his land is the spring. He's running off here and running off there to get water. Yeah, and somehow I think we're like that with the sacrament of marriage. Mm -hmm. God has put the spring of power and grace right in the marriage. What you seem to be saying is, look, clear away those bricks. Right. Take that power. Change your own little society right. that you have control of. Yeah. That will bring about the change in society that we also so desperately want to see. Right. Mm. Thank you, um, Scott. To restore all things in Christ, you know, <laughs> reconstructing the social order. I mean, th these are these are big, <laughs> big ticket items, you know. But I think the call is for us to go back home and to uh, not look at our cell phones during dinner, you know, to really linger with family members. We've always shared good things. We're not done with dinner until everybody has shared a good thing for the day. Uh, I think vacations, uh, family prayer, the rosary especially. Uh, vacations where you also go out of your way to stop at a shrine and to pray the rosary along the way. Uh, playing ball in the backyard, you know, frisbee, whatever. Kimberly said, don't just pray, play, yeah. you know, with the kids and the grandkids too. And, you know, to open the doors to other families so that you can share in this sort of thing mm -hmm. and rub off on one another. You know, I just mentioned before the show began that I came from my home where 40 or 50 kids were there for a skills day which we've been doing for 20 years. And there are a lot of other families who are like that as well, here and elsewhere, but I think we need a whole lot more mm -hmm. family life and a whole lot more families living this kind of thing together and sharing the burdens, acknowledging the difficulties, stop pretending that it's Ozzie and Harriet or Leave it to Beaver. We really did struggle. I mean, Kimberly considered divorcing me at one point and I didn't even know until afterwards, you know. Uh, and, and it was the fear of hell on the one hand, and I think both discovered that it was the grace of the sacrament of matrimony that kept us together in spite of everything, and then led us to a place where we experience now a friendship that I never even imagined possible in a marriage. But we still go through difficulties within the last week, you know, apologies, and we have to forgive, you know, promptly and sincerely, and, you know, I snored last night and so I had to leave. You know? <laughs> I mean, all of these are the things that, you know, if we become saints, this is why, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think we are called to one thing and that is sanctity and most of us are called to it in one way and that is marriage. And baptism and confirmation in the Eucharist, penance most especially. I mean, mm -hmm. I've gone to confession weekly since I became a Catholic more than 30 years ago. And Kimberly and the kids have never said I go too often. You know? <laughs> and I think they're grateful for whatever natural effects as well as supernatural effects. And so I think if we can stop complaining, start diagnosing the problem, but diagnosing it is so much easier than solving the problem. But actually solving the problem is close at hand. Mm. Begin again and again and again. Apologize, forgive, you know, and then make resolutions to do practical things because in the little nitty-gritty things of life, that's where sanctity grows. And, uh, 
you know, uh, again, by putting down the paper, uh, by listening more carefully to my wife, uh, by making sure that I call my kids because they're raising families of their own, we want to make it weekly. I, I really believe that, especially intellectuals like me, have, we've got to be brought down to earth and identify practical ways every day, and especially little things that we can't brag about or yeah. you know, give into pride about. I mean, I could go on and on, but I think as we're putting all of the bricks on the wall, we should also take a step back and say that everything is Christ's. You know, there isn't a square inch of this planet that Jesus doesn't point to and say, that's mine. Yeah. There isn't a soul on earth that he doesn't look at and say, I bought you, I redeemed you. And so if we supernaturalize this, I think we really have a capacity to spread a joy that others will find irresistible. As Pope Francis called it, the joy of the gospel. The joy of the Lord is our strength. It is the means by which they converted the world back then, and we'll do it again if we are faithful. Amen. Amen. Um, well, uh, Scott, thank you for this book. This is really great, and uh, it's definitely a great tool for us. If you'd enjoy today's program, we have a handout for you. It's uh, it's an excerpt from the book, The First Society, uh, the, A Sacramental Society. Um, so you'll want to get this at faithandreason.com or just for asking. Um, this book is, uh, is pointing away to a pretty revolutionary idea about how we change the world uh, by, by first starting with ourselves and really our family. Uh, because ultimately there is a war going on and, and you are in the midst of it and your marriage your your kids marriage your grandkids marriage those matter matter to us they matter to the church they matter to the, the future of our society so invest deeply in it and rely on God's grace to really transform you and then transform the world um, as part of our mission here at Franciscan University, we believe we're called to educate, to evangelize, um, and send forth joyful disciples so as to restore all things in Christ. And so we want to invite you to be a part of that mission, this life-saving mission, by maybe coming here to Steubenville, Ohio, to take classes and earn your degree or through our online programs, or come to our, our evangelistic conferences throughout our summers, or join with us on pilgrimages to holy shrines around the world. Your life needs to be changed, and you need to be equipped for the new evangelization. So make sure you go to faithandreason.com for great talks, information, and inspiration for the work. And until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. download the free handout on today's topic, go to faithandreason.com. Email your request for the handout to presents at franciscan.edu. At faithandreason.com, you can also purchase past episodes of Franciscan University Presents or request today's free handout and purchase past programs by calling 888-333-0381. That's 888-333-0381 or call 740 Two eight three six three five seven.